Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Roger Lanius will join us to discuss the Smithsonian history of space exploration. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. While space, it may be the final frontier, but the history of space exploration is almost centuries in the making. And joining us to discuss this issue is Dr. Roger Lanius. Dr. Lanius is a former Associate Director of Collections and Curatorial Affairs at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. From 1990 to 2002, he served as Chief Historian of NASA. And he's authored numerous books, including Hubble's Legacy and his new book entitled The Smithsonian History of Space Exploration from the Ancient World to the Extraterrestrial Future, explores the history of space exploration for a general audience. And Dr. Lani, it's very pleased to have you today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you. It's happy to be here. Well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, uh, The Smithsonian History of Space Exploration, uh, filled with amazing pictures and images. Why did you decide to put this book together? Well, I mean, it's it's sort of the culmination of uh, spending, you know, now almost 30 years studying the history of space flight. So it's an opportunity to sort of tell that story from start to finish in a in a in a form that's sort of designed for a for a general audience with uh, with good imagery that they can help to visualize what this is all about. And indeed, take a broad view of the history of space flight. It's going from early dawn of a human civilization in a way is really the uh, the history of, of space exploration that far in the making. Oh yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, uh, astronomy is the is the world's oldest science, and uh, from the very ancients, uh, the ancient uh, times. Uh, of first types of civilizations. They were staring at the heavens, trying to figure out what was taking place, and they made some stunning discoveries. And we've seen the vestiges of that in places like Stonehenge and creation of the calendars and and uh, tracking the, uh, uh, the way in which uh, uh, planets move and so forth throughout, throughout human history. And as soon as people began to think about those places beyond that they saw in the nighttime sky, they began to think about, you know, could we go there? What would we find there if we went? And so there's a lot of speculation about that going back centuries. Deep uh, curiosity almost uh, for from the very beginning in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's really no way to, to think about it except to say that we have been mesmerized by uh, the what we see in the nighttime sky from time immemorial. Well, well, the book really kind of almost picks up the the modern exploration of, uh, of space uh, after World War II. I mean, how did World War II pave the way for for space exploration? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously there's a lot of preliminaries before that, but the reality is World War II provided the investment necessary to build rockets, and not for space exploration purposes, but for you know, delivering a warhead uh, on an enemy. But that technology can be used for a variety of things, including sending spacecraft and people into space and off to journeys to wherever else we might want to send them. And and that investment in rocketry in World War II, especially 
the German building of the V-2 rocket, but not just them. I mean, there's rockets built by every major nation that's engaged in the war. Um, most of them are not as impressive, say, as the V-2 was, which was the world's first ballistic missile. But uh, we all had various types of sort of rocket as artillery that uh, really furthered the technology that really expanded after World War II as people built on what they had learned from the war. It's really the development of that rocket technology that would become so instrumental later. That Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you, you know, at the end of the war, everybody recognized that they needed to develop this type of technology, again, for military purposes in most cases. Both the Americans and the Soviet Union were absolutely convinced that they had to uh, that they had to move forward with rocket technology that could be used for the delivery of weapons against uh, some enemy. But but they weren't the only ones. The British, the French, a, a number of other uh, nations who were combatants and saw what had been done with the V2 said, oh, we've got to get a piece of this as well. And they all started to pursue it. Um, some in a very direct manner, the Americans captured Werner von Braun in a a large number of his key people uh, who, you know, they did want to, they did at the end of the war want to surrender to the Americans because they wanted to be able to come to America and continue their rocket work. But uh, the Soviets also did the same thing. Uh, there were scientific missions that were undertaken to occupy Germany to find the people and the equipment that was used to build this technology and bring it back to the U.S. and of course, the Soviets did the same thing to Russia. And that became the basis for both of the, of the rocket programs in, in the two major rivals of the Cold War, the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And then, of course, we all know of the Russians then uh, sending their uh, satellite into space and almost that, <laughs> the, 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 the opening salvo, if you will, to the, to the race. Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. You, you can ask yourself the question, when did the space age begin? But I would always date it to the 4th of October of 1957 when the first Earth-orbiting satellite is launched, and the Soviet Union did that, uh, using technologies built upon uh, what they had learned from the Germans in World War II. It wasn't obviously the same technology, but it was related to it. And, uh, and they were successful more quickly than the Americans were. There was major efforts underway for the U.S. as well, and they would follow the orbiting of Sputnik with uh, Explorer 1, which would be launched on the 31st of January of 1958, and would obviously then be uh, uh, the, the second um, nation to engage in orbital activities in space. And since that time, there's been, you know, nearly 100 countries that's been engaged in this up to the present. But, you know, many of us, you know, think back on that time as, as almost kind of the golden era of, of space exploration. I mean, that was the really the, the impetus to explore uh, the world's the race to the moon. Of course. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the space race, as it's sometimes called, or the race to the moon, if you choose to interpret it as just a, a lunar activity. But, you know, that's fueled by the Cold War rivalry. And it, it's sort of hard for us to understand today, you know, we're we're almost 30 years past the end of the Cold War, and uh, there's fewer and fewer people that actually remember that and, uh, and how desperate it was. I mean, this rivalry was very intense, uh, and we were concerned about the way in which uh, the future would unfold. Would it be um, uh, as these two competing 
and rival nations with, uh, with different political and economic systems. Who was going to be successful? That was not a given uh, when the Cold War began as to who was going to be successful. And we were scared of the Russians. I mean, with the rise of ballistic missile technology, with the development of atomic bombs, we knew it was now just a choice on the part of the Soviets whether or not they wanted to annihilate us. They could do it if they chose to do so. In the same way, we could annihilate them if we chose to do so, or we could do each other uh, in through uh, competing ballistic missiles. And that drove a lot of early activity, but it also drove the technology that enabled us to get off this planet. And it also drove the geopolitical desire to one-up the other side. And that's what Sputnik was about. You know, the, the Russians were successful there. They got bragging rights doing that. Uh, the Americans were not as uh, as uh, effective in terms of doing it as quickly. The Russians did it again uh, with with uh, Sputnik 2, in which they had the dog Laika aboard. They did it uh, repeatedly in the late 1950s with various uh, uh, robotic probes that went to the moon and things of that nature. And, of course, Yuri Gagarin, the famous uh, flight on the 12th of April of 1961, in which the first human orbited the Earth. Those were enormous political coups for the Soviet Union, and the Americans felt the need to respond. The result of that was the creation of NASA. It was also uh, the decision to uh, establish the Mercury program with Mercury astronauts as sort of the face of the space race. And, uh, and of course, the famous uh, speech by John Kennedy in 1961 about going to the moon and setting in train uh, that race uh, to, to reach the lunar surface. All of that was a part of the Cold War objectives. And it, it was not envisioned at a geopolitical level as something about science, although we did learn a great deal about the moon and did a lot of good science in the process. Indeed, I've seen it written that uh, were it not for the Cold War, we almost uh, achieved all these things decades before many people might expect we would have, just based on the natural progress of where the technology was going. Yeah, that that is probably true. You know, it's not to say we wouldn't have done those things, but we certainly wouldn't have done them on the schedule we did. The Apollo program to reach the moon by the end of the decade was clearly driven by Cold War rivalries. And... um, and, and obviously, the U.S. government opened the Treasury to make it possible to achieve that objective, and, and of course, we did. So, and, and, and that sort of changed the dynamic, because not only did the Americans and the Russians end up in this race to the moon and uh, develop technologies that would enable them to carry out those activities, everybody else in the world, all the other countries of the world are watching this take place. And many of them, especially those that have sort of desires to become, at the very least, a regional uh, a force, if not a, a, a worldwide force, they want to create their own efforts. And they want to do it for the same reasons the Americans and the Russians did. This is technology that's important. It's, uh, it has military application. It has practical application by putting satellites in orbit. Uh, it also has commercial importance because that investment in those technologies will drive your economy in ways that uh, that will be beneficial to you. So a lot of nations in the 1960s start to get involved, sometimes in partnership, in fact, mostly in partnership with either the Americans or the Russians, but also with the intent of eventually becoming their own independent space-faring uh, uh, nation, and, uh, and they could launch their own satellites and operate them and do all those sorts of things that were 
familiar with today. I I love to tell the story of the Indian uh, Space Agency, which was created in the mid-1960s. And India was was a perfect example of this because they're not they're they're watching both sides of this cold war who should we align with should we align with the soviet union should we align with the americans and 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 there's a lot of natural propensities to go toward the americans because they've got a long history with the british and and colonialism there and 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 there's a lot of ties between indian scientists and engineers and european western european and and american uh counterparts but there's also a lot of capability in the Soviet Union, and ultimately they end up building their first satellite in the 1960s in uh, in concert with and help from the Soviet Union. And they believed that it was important for them to be involved in this in the same way that all these others were. And that's happened over and over and over again as uh, nations around the world are watching what the Americans and the Russians are doing and thinking, we need to be a part of this. And they began to invest in the technology as well. And the current landscape of, of space exploration is truly internationally. I mean, you have many, many nations, but not, not only nations, but there's also now private enterprise involved. Well, that's, that, that's of course, true. You know, uh, most of the capabilities that have been developed are obviously established and operated in, in, in what we might call first world advanced nations, but not necessarily so. And and so we see that starting to emerge. And from the very beginning, there's corporations involved. Often they're just contractors. They're building something on behalf of, of a nation state that is paying them to do it. That's happened over and over again. Very, very few companies just do it on spec. They will engage in the development of their own rocket if they think that there's a market that will enable them to sell launch services. That's That's happened. SpaceX is a great example of that in the uh, recently in the United States, and others have done it before that time and continue to do it today. And where are we now? I mean, many people might have thought a lull in the way after the big space race, sending people off into space. I mean, certainly doing exploration, but maybe not the view of the golden era there where we'd be out there colonizing space. Where is our mission? Where's where's the focus, do you think, heading? And, and do you think we're we're now eventually going to move to the point where we're exploring other, other planets or other parts of the solar system? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see how it's unfolding. You know, what we had early on, and it was really driven by the geopolitics of the Cold War, is activities that are largely undertaken by nation states, especially the United States and the Soviet Union, and they accomplish a fair amount. And it was essentially war by another means, but nobody got killed, at least not intentionally. And um, and at some level, it was about persuading a country like India or name the other non-aligned nation of your choice to throw their lot in with one side or the other. The um, in the aftermath of that, you know, the American and the Russian program sort of backed off from that very aggressive effort and the expenditure of very aggressive amounts of money to do something like the moon programs. But uh, they began to turn low Earth orbit into a normal realm of human activity. And that's a, a very important development. You know, so they've extended human technological, but especially commercial activities into Earth orbit, and we now routinely do it. It is no longer a frontier. The frontier was blazed by the Americans and the Russians in the 1960s, but in the 1970s and, and thereafter, that area in Earth orbit has become a very common place to go. Uh, astronauts and cosmonauts who undertake activities there today, they're not exploring in the same way 
that you, you, you normally think of exploring. They're engaged in sort of activities that are much more routine. It's not to say they're unimportant, but they're, they're, they're not necessarily doing new things. But that's always what's happened. Uh, throughout human history, whenever someone undertakes exploration, the people behind them pr- move into those same areas and begin to exploit it. And that's what's happening in Earth orbit. We'll see the same thing happen. NASA's already talking about and wanting to raise its sights into the translunar area, undertake exploration and go back to the moon, maybe onto Mars. And, um, and, and they'll probably do that. And they'll turn low Earth orbit over to commercial entities that can do all kinds of other things there. And I think we'll be better off for it, quite frankly. Pushing its way out into into space. The frontier is expanding. That's correct. That's exactly what's happened in the past. When you look at terrestrial exploration, it's exactly the same thing. Well, the book recounts, you know, the history of space flight remarkably well, and, and the pictures are also uh, amazing. Uh, curious just to, to remark on those those images. I mean, how are these put together and chosen from NASA images? Or Yeah, well, I mean, uh, one can, I, I think, enjoy the book at some level, at several levels. One is you can flip through the pages and read the captions of the illustrations, and I think lots of people will be very happy just doing that. Uh, I'd like to think that the spreads, the two pages that you look at when you open up uh, the book will tell you a, a, a cohesive story and and in some depth, and that of course was my objective as we as we undertook the book, and as we framed it, I tried to to do it in chapters that would take more or less a chronological approach, although um, you know some of the some of the chapters like there's a whole chapter on Mars for instance spans back in time and goes back to the 19th century and and uh, obviously up to the present and projecting a little bit onward beyond that. Uh, and uh, it's not just fully chronological is, all, is the only point I would make. But uh, in words and pictures, I'd like to think we tell a really powerful story about what has happened. I mean, one of the interesting things that I, I think a lot of us get excited about uh, who've studied this for a long time and who you know, sort of grew up on the Apollo program as I did, you know, we, we sort of believe that you know, just a few years after Apollo, we would have a base on the moon. We'd be sending people to Mars and all that kind of stuff. None of that happened. Uh, we've done a lot of things, and we've done a lot of really important things, but we haven't done what we thought we would do. So I, I would suggest that the history of spaceflight is one in which, um, you know, many very significant and important and and historically uh changing activities have been accomplished, some of which were anticipated, but many of which were not. And I, I think that's what we're finding as we go forward in this. And I think that, that more will happen in the 21st century along the same lines. We'll have to read of the, of the history in 20, 30 years. <laughs> that's absolutely right. All right. Well, we were just talking to Dr. Roger Lanius. He's the author of The Smithsonian History of Space Exploration from the Ancient World to the Extraterrestrial Future. And uh, Dr. Lanius, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I hope everybody enjoys the book. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.